This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. Today we talk about dating and hookups in the age of social media. And I'm joined by award-winning author Charlotte Everett-Jones. He was on this show just a few weeks ago to talk about the world of showbiz and entertainment. And I'm happy to welcome him again to discuss an no less exciting subject. Welcome, Gerald. Thank you. So nice to be with you, Ina. I'm logging in from the left coast of America, so Hollywood adjacent, we might say. Yeah. So dating, it's always an exciting topic. And you are the author of My Inflatable Friend, The Confessions of Roller Hamphill. This is the first book in a series of romantic comedies about a character who goes to great lengths to get the girl of his dreams. So he's trying to make her jealous by driving in a car with a life-size trouble doll. And as you write, this book was written a while ago when social media was not our daily reality yet. And uh, it's interesting to see how we behave both in the physical and the digital world. Well, the series spans, I forgot quite how long it took for all those to be released. I think it might've been over a period of even 10 years. So yes, My Inflatable Friend appeared almost coincident with the introduction of the iPhone. And then the two later books, Rubber Babes is more like, careful what you ask for. <laughs> it's about the happy ever after. You know, he does spoiler alert, get the girls of his dreams, if you will. But And then the third one, Farnsworth Revenge, has to do with his middle-aged boss developing a fixation for this doll that, <laughs> that was in his closet and makes off with it on his yacht in the south of France, and then there are complications ensue. So it really does span the era of the evolution of social media, and that was one of the reasons I was eager to talk about how how that approach kind of changed, how that mindset changed, because I did recently re-release that series, and I actually felt compelled to write, I wouldn't call it an apologetic preface. <laughs> Some of you children may not appreciate what challenges existed before before social media, so... That's kind of the backstory. Uh, right. Getting back to pretension, does it ever help to pretend to someone you are not? What do you think? Well, I'm not sure that that's really changed very much. I mean, you know, here in the movie business, I will say I've seen a lot of actors' resumes. And there's the glossy photo. I mean, in the old days, it was the glossy photo and then the printed resume on the back. Now it's, you know, it's an email, but, you know, actors would rarely submit the latest <laughs> version of themselves, you know, and especially the older they got, the more retouched the photo. And then also, you know, the age might be a deliberate fib. It might be more the age you think you could play rather than the age you are. And then also on the resume, uh, you know, there would be walk-on roles, bit parts that, you know, if the producer didn't know the material or if it was obscure material, which a lot of the, a lot of the early 
experience of the actor might have been in some amateur production of an amateur play, whatever, they, you know, the summary is going to make that role look bigger than it is typically, you know, a featured player rather than a, you know, a, you know, in, in the movies, they call it under, an under five. Okay. If you have less than five lines, that's actually a union definition. But, but all I'm saying is that it not just Tinder and dating apps and, and you know, what goes on today, but people have always lied about their persona, uh, you know, when they, you know, and in, in my inflatable friend, you know, he's a car jockey, but he's trying to, he aspires to, at a luxury hotel, he is aspiring to be a DJ and he wants to be a DJ on the, in the media. And, you know, he dresses this doll up to look like a famous star. And, you know, one of the, complications is the paparazzi pick it up and they actually accuse the star of that you know of running around with him you know this guy who's half half her age so i don't think that's changed i do think what has changed and it has a lot more to do with the whole universe of technology not just smart media but and i'll give you an example in my day-to-day -day life, because you know, frankly, I don't, you know, I'm not in the dating world anymore. But, but I will say that friends and colleagues, I have people that I used to speak with regularly on the phone for whatever concern. They only want texts, and I was reminded of actually I just looked it up, an old romantic comedy movie it had Alan King in it, Nally McGraw, and he was an he was this middle-aged fellow and she was his mistress and the problem was she was just way too demanding <laughs> he thought and the title of the movie is just tell me what you want <laughs> okay <laughs> and the thing was it was like you know if it's within reason i'll give it to you i mean i'm a rich guy just tell me what you want <laughs> not, don't try to manipulate me okay well these people that i try to communicate with often it may have to do with a business transaction or it may have to do with a a technical question, you know, what do you think about this? Or did you see my recent post or, you know, th those kinds of things? Well, the message is the same. Just send it to me as a text. Just tell me what you want. <laughs> okay. And that, that in a bygone era, that would be considered to be rude. I don't want the story of your life. I don't want to catch up on what's happened to you since we communicated last. I'm, you know, I'm a busy person. I just, you know, I'm, I'll be happy to to comply i'll be happy to tell you what i know but it will simply be another two lines in a text that i shoot back and i think that dating has become more like that in its early phases you know i had a colleague who had a story my life swiping right which had to do with making a lot of bad decisions well I do think that that tends to make what we might call the early phases more transactional. You know, what have you got to offer? What have I got to offer? Let's see what you like. Let's see what I like. And of course, the idea that a couple going off into the sunset because you both have the same likes is a very unrealistic view of, of love and romance, okay? Mm -hmm. 
my wife and I agree about very few things, although we're both opera fans. But even then, we actually reviewed the LA Opera for a while for a publication. And we started off with what we called a he said, she said, which, which was, you know, it was actually a debate in print about, you know, <laughs> we would argue about what we liked, what we didn't like. Well, that didn't last very long. <laughs> and she took the column over. I thought that was more interesting, but then again, you know, she didn't. So <laughs> that's, you know, that that's just one example. But I will say that I don't know the I would call it trivial, but I, one of the things I noticed, I was a student in, in, in Paris in my college years, and I and this was some years ago, and I, I did notice that in the dating world there, the French students would often go out in groups. They would go out in a cohort or a posse, okay? And they weren't what we would call paired up. They, you know, they weren't necessarily, there wasn't necessarily an even number of men and women or whatever sexual persuasion, but I mean, it was just a group of friends. And yes, of course, they'd have interactions and then, you know, it would become like one of these famous TV series, friends, you know, they would pair up, they would break up, they would get back, you know, shuffle the deck. But I mean, I do think that kind of social interaction does seem to be more common these days at least, you know, in, in the world that I observe, is that there, you know, yes, of course, there's the girls' night out, there's the bachelor's party, but I think there are also these cohorts and posses that are students who are friends. And I think that might be perhaps a really good balance or counter to this transactional one-on-one, -on -one. you know, we've got that stereotype of, you know, you're in the restaurant and you can see the couple there and they're both staring into their phones. Well, part of it is the, the new paperless thing where, okay, the menu's only on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> but then this one restaurant that I go to, they want you to order on the phone. And then, you know, this fellow who can hardly speak the language delivers your food. He's not a waiter. You can't ask him about the about what the chef uses to make this dish. It's just, you know, a robot could do it and, you know, probably will at some point. So, yeah, I would say more transactional. And I all, all would also say that there are methods of social interaction that are, I think, somewhat taking that place of getting to know you, of, you know, even if it's a friend's recommendation, see, you know, there's going to be an, there's going to be an, an initial exchange of messages. So yes, I, that dynamic has changed very much. Yes, I agree about the transactional nature of modern dating. And, you know, it's easier to be behind the screen than face to face. Maybe that adds to that transactional behavior because you have so many people who you can text and you have the illusion of choice. Well, I think also, you know, there's the the obvious lack of body language, smell, uh, 
manners at dinner, you know, these things that might be considered old fashioned. And I would say someone who doesn't make the first cut, as it were, you know, in the actor's audition <laughs> is not going to have a chance to read, is not going to have a chance to perform. You're not going to be able to see them in action. You're simply making a superficial decision. So another thing that I notice is, of course, and this has been true for quite a long time, is that it's become much more socially acceptable for people to live together. And, you know, not, I mean, in a roommate relationship, but also in a, what you might call a committed relationship or a trial committed relationship. And I think that has, that what that can do is, you know, with property laws and, you know, the seriousness of divorce and that kind of thing, it's, it may well be that couples would decide, you know, for the legality of marriage, primarily if they want to have children. Now, if they want to have children, then it really becomes a matter of now we're going back to families and arranged marriages and how much it's not how much dowry they bring, but, you know, but their respective bank accounts and, and, you know, he owns a house. Do they move into it or do they sell that and pick another one? Uh, you know, she, you know, she's been living with her family, but then, you know, her family's going to leave her this house. She doesn't want to leave it. I mean, it becomes so much more contractual in a way it, the seriousness of that decision may have a lot less to do with what we might call the romantic commitment the love commitment and i I, I would submit that also this speed dating or this these smartphone transactions whatever because that has led to some social isolation i mean we you know we talk about people young people not having as much sex anymore and they're more reluctant to get together and there's you know there are sexually transmitted diseases which you know there's a degree of seriousness about that and seriousness and trust say and so it it can be more difficult to get together well that said then where it goes from there may be the idea that we have in movies not just in media but the in, in movies and television popular and pop oh pop music of course is this idea that of course romantic love is the deciding factor it is it is this this is i met the one okay well you know if you live in california there might be the three <laughs> what you know i moved here from the midwest and before I did it, oh, I hear you're moving to California, Gerald. He said, I understand it's a lot harder to stay married out there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the idea of idealized romantic love in many ways is unrealistic or at least deliberately unrealistic. It, you know, the idea is that we're certainly the happily 
happy ever after, you're going to be disabused of that <laughs> by the first or second week, if you haven't already from living together. And that's another reason why, you know, living together is a very good idea because you kind of want to know whether they leave their underwear on the floor and <laughs> refuse to do the dishes. And, you know, you want to be able to divide up those housekeeping things so that um, the trick is leveraging the talents on each side, you know, so one is obsessive compulsive. Okay. Well, that can be the person who, you know, puts things away. <laughs> and the other one is, you know, more creative. Well, that can be the person who books the travel and decides where to go and suggests the vacations and, you know, you know let's not get into the trap of all, well, one of them's boring and one of them's adventurous. No, I mean, there are talents that are contributing to each other and you know it's a really good idea in a in a live-in relationship to simply learn how to say thank you even for the tiniest things you know thanks for folding the clothes this morning <laughs> you know it just uh you know and i think you know there might people might go, oh, duh. I mean, that's what he always does. Or no, <laughs> didn't have to. But the idea of continually making contributions to the community, and this is one of the things that I find that I find I don't know I would say disturbing, but uh, about about society in general is, you know, we talk about this separation of classes and the 1% and all like that. And I do believe that the argument that the wealthier folks should have an attitude of giving back, granted, you know, there are reasons to fund philanthropies and, you know, some of them can be self-serving and or not. But I do think that the argument that the society as a whole with its policemen, firemen, community services, trash pickup, whatever it is, educational system has helped you get to the point where you could amass that wealth and you did not do that by yourself okay and you probably had an army of people who were working for you at various levels who you know helped bring value to your product or your services or whatever it is you were doing and the fact that you hit a business need you hit that nail on the head where others missed it is not a proof of your righteousness or how much God loves you. Okay. It is, it is simply good fortune. Now it could be good fortune from hard work. It could certainly be well-deserved, but the idea that I've now got mine, you get yours. I think that's just incredibly awful, <laughs> reprehensible. And, you know, I, at some point, uh, you know, people who are in that class of society 
are do get coerced into more just behavior because of things like you know antitrust lawsuits and you know class actions and things like that but i mean it shouldn't have to come to that number one but then also i think in just within the community you know and we're also talking about how you know social media facebook twitter the idea that hate speech is more viral than other kinds of debate that contributes to certainly has contributed to a polarization of views and attitudes and that's unfortunate and that i think there there's a widespread recognition that somehow needs repair we don't yet quite know how to do it i think as i expressed to you last time we talked in many ways i find hope in this notion that humans as survivors we have a series of inventions that have enabled us to prevail and i do believe that there's no coincidence that we invented the internet at just the time that global consciousness is essential for survival if you can't act if forces can't act globally on a geopolitical basis on an economic basis on a basis of of contended interests competing for resources but you know even from the standpoint of of climate and what whether or not it's a good idea to i mean i just saw the news item this morning you know nasa's setting off a, a satellite to uh, to check out this metallic asteroid well i did review a book some time ago called the gravity well which was by one of the nasa directors a retired director and he said that if we could mine the asteroids there there would be virtually no resource shortages in terms of you know right now we're scrambling for lithium cobalt you know the stuff for nickel the stuff for car batteries okay well you know saying you know there's enough platinum <laughs> in you know now that <laughs> as an economist i would say that creates a problem is because if you if suddenly platinum is worth about as much as lead because it's commonplace what is that you know what is you know what does that do to the gold market or whatever i mean th that's also an argument is that technology is going to make if we do things the way that we are wanting to do once we make energy incredibly cheap so cheap it's almost free then what happens to the petrodollar what happens to the geopolitical landscape as it exists today that you know the world has been very much built on oil wealth since the industrial revolution you know oil and coal and that could very well go away it could go very away very rapidly and the other thing is if you have free energy guess what you've got unlimited clean water because you just simply, you know, it's expensive right now to kind of, you know, desalinate the oceans, but not if you have unlimited electricity. 
<laughs> just like, you know, want some water? <laughs> you know, let's just uh, create a new river and divert it in your direction. It's not going to be hard. So, uh, I, it, no, it, and I do think that it's the pace. What's really bewildering is the pace at which technology is changing. I mean, we've just seen it in the last few weeks with the AI debate. And this is serious stuff. And I frankly think when we're talking about this polarization of society, I think that a lot of the people who are who have kind of become anti-science, if you will, which may or may not square with their traditional religious teachings. It's just because they kind of want, they really prefer time to go backwards because they're just bewildered and terrified by how fast this stuff is going. And I would say that, you know, the younger you are, the less afraid you are in many respects is maybe you want to accelerate the future because you feel, feel like, if there's one thing that's going to save us, it probably will be technology. So, you know, there may be more belief in that. It's interesting how we turned from dating to broader societal issues. Actually, I'm happy about that. I wanted to comment on your thought about ideal relationship that that actually doesn't exist. I think that is connected to this narcissist culture that we are observing today due to the proliferation of social media, of the internet. I think it has two aspects to it. One, uh, we become less confident of ourselves because we create this ideal image of our personality on Facebook, on Instagram, whatever. And uh, then uh, it's challenging to reveal yourself to your romantic uh, interest or to another person, to, you know, your future employer, whoever. I think that creates a lot of pressure on people to be ideal and to demonstrate ideal behavior, ideal setup at home, ideal relationship. It also has an upper layer, which is politics and societal norms in general, how politicians make their decisions as well. So all these aspects are interrelated on the micro level, on the macro level. And yeah, it's interesting to see where are we going with the social media, with artificial intelligence and the pace of it is the biggest question, whether it will be accelerating exponentially and how that will affect our perception of life, of the world. Is it good or bad, actually, for our mental well-being, for our society? What do you think? Well, dating is certainly fundamental. I mean, it's it's the root of the family, also the root of relationships that that endure if you will or you know and i think that one of the things i see is that lifelong relationships staying in touch with people that we knew as children that is very tricky 
And I think, I mean, for example, I'm on the board of independent writers of Southern California. And I've been a member of that group for a very long time. And I would say many of my friends and colleagues are within that group because they simply, they have a common interest. They have a reason to stay together. And some of these people who I love and respect, you know, they've become my beta readers, my advisors, my, you know, the people that I try out ideas on and Yes, at times we only text each other, but but you know what? Through COVID, I you know one of the reasons the group really was very successful at hanging together is we had Zoom regular Zoom meetings, and in fact, we because you know back when we had physical meetings, people would often have to travel long distances to come. Well, we've got affiliates in Chicago now, which <clears throat> halfway across the country, and we've even had some international connections and, you know, like this one. And those relationships are the glue. And I, and then, so, so I would say going back to your point about the importance of relationships and how that differs from what we might call the ideal you know i mean love at first sight is lust i mean basically and you know the shine's going to wear off that and even for people who are well suited to one another and i would say that the aspects of companionship collaboration cooperation i mean the term power couple okay which was often used to refer to Bill and Hillary Clinton, for example. I mean, there were many people who believed that they were no longer <laughs> all that fond of one another <clears throat> after what happened. But she, quote unquote, stood by her stood by her man. You know, and who knows? I mean, you know, it who who can see into their psyches? But I would say that the idea of their staying together because they recognize their effectiveness is, you know, I know other older married couples who also, I mean, it's the, they may own, they, you know, they may be partners in a company or they may manage real estate together or may, whatever it is, you know, they, together, they run the local dry cleaners there, there's something there now. Maybe it's a matter of using that income to support a tight-knit family, you know. And so there's the stereotype of the Korean grocery store owner, say, and we, and and again, we have these. We also have these portrayals in the media, some of which are maybe accurate, and some of which maybe may not be. But we're the I what this makes me think of is I knew a fellow some time ago who was a psychiatrist wasn't mine <laughs> not that I haven't had him but he was a psychiatrist and he was talking to me about multiple personas and masks and he said that there there really was a school in psychiatry that said that you know there isn't an individual doesn't have a personality. Individual has a series of masks we wear depending on the occasion. We have the dutiful 
son. We've got the we've got the ideal lover. We've got the we've got the know-it-all college professor. We've got the mean boss. We we you know, the, these are roles that we take on because we've adapted them to whatever social what's whatever appropriate for the social interaction. Okay, and we even have some people who've gone so far as to say that the notion of a soul, the notion of a personality is simply the sum total of the being's opinion of itself over time. In other words, from about age two or three, we're asking ourselves every minute of every day, who am I? Okay, so we're based on our performance, criticism, achievements, <laughs> love connections, whatever, we're forming opinions about, oh, well, I did that. I was wrong doing that, or, or I got knocked down doing this, or wow, I, wow, I'm really good at that. And so we have this whole idea of, oh, I'm a talented novelist. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and yet, you know, when I'm in the grocery store, I'm not really the talented novelist shopping for vegetables. I'm the guy who really doesn't know a whole lot about what's fresh and what's not. <laughs> and I need to ask somebody who knows a lot about, you know, is this cantaloupe good? Uh, and so I, so then I'm a supplicant, if you will. I'm a pray tell, Mr. Guru, can you tell me how to choose here because I'm lost. Well, that recognition that I need help is not the same personality type of the fellow who's talking to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do think that the technology does affect that dynamic. I'm not quite sure how. I mean, I, you know, maybe not, you know, we need to, we would probably need to step into the future and look back on, I, I do worry. I mean, you know, Apple announced their VR headset yesterday and I do worry about, about, you know, certainly as, as an educational tool. I mean, I have seen instances where, you know, the surgeon is practicing on a virtual, doing heart surgery on some, something that doesn't exist okay i think that's a very good thing <laughs> the first few times you try it but to but to be immersed in a world the same way that one might be immersed in a video game is it, truly scary i mean you insert i mean we've got plenty of science fiction movies that you know the matrix and such that show us about people getting lost and not being not and not even knowing whether they're in one and all one of several alternate realities and that kind of thing so yeah i think that's very concerning whether we need legislation for it <laughs> i i i i i will predict that those folks are not that smart i mean they certainly, somebody made the comment the other day that most laws based on precedent and experience. And I think that's certainly true. 
and that's fine. You know, we learn from our mistakes to the extent that we actually have good laws, good legislation, whatever. But if we're talking about legislating the future, yikes. That's <laughs> that that may do enough to prevent whatever is beneficial coming to us as it would to prevent us from doing wrong. So I suppose it might be a marketplace argument, which of course it's always very difficult to, I mean, for somebody like me to say, oh, let's just trust the marketplace because I think a lot of people get chewed up in the process. I, you know, I don't think that the blind operation of economics is particularly just, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, we don't, we simply don't know where this is going. I would say the reason we're having this conversation in it is that we sense that, especially since we're both involved in, <laughs> deeply involved in social media, in somehow communicating so that we can build community, which I would say is a really virtuous enterprise on the face of it, if we can make it happen. But one of the reasons we're having the conversation is we sense, we know that things are changing very rapidly. And we see it as much as anyone because we deal with these. I mean, you know, there's a new tool every other day. I mean, I just started my Substack platform and that wasn't a thing. I mean, it might've existed for a while, but I mean, I, among authors using it as ways of what Wired Magazine used to call a thousand true fans, the idea was, you know, get a cadre of a thousand true fans and, you know, you somehow have arrived, if not financially. But yes, you, everyone needs a fan following. If you have something to say, you don't want it to just be friends and family. You have to have a way of putting it out there. But yes, we we sense that things are changing so rapidly and yet... We just have no clue where it's going. If you were around when Gutenberg was printing the first Bibles, I learned not that long ago that it was actually the Jews who were kicked out of Spain about the time that that Columbus sailed. But Ferdinand and Isabella said, you know, either profess Catholicism or leave basically, or convert, you know. And so, you know, that was the beginning of that diaspora. And there were two places where Jewish people from that region ultimately ended up, among others, but the two principal places, one was Amsterdam, and the other was Turkey maybe not so much Istanbul, but Smyrna area. And one of the marvelous things is that not only did the Ottoman Empire welcome those people, but it benefited by the fact that the Jewish people took printing technology with them. The first printing presses were operated <laughs> by Jewish immigrants. And then, what you know, I, I don't remember those Leibniz, but I, you know, the, the intellectual community in Amsterdam was very much 
Jewish and the invention of optics and eyeglasses. <laughs> and also, you know, that's why it occurred in Amsterdam and not Barcelona. So, you know, who knew that 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 evacuation would somehow create these centers of culture and fundamentally change the course of, of human history? And from the standpoint of those inventions, you know, very much to the better. Now, you know, um, certainly disruptions have caused things to go all kinds of ways. But here's another thought if we're talking about really advanced speculation is, you know, there's there are actually some physicists talking about the theoretical possibility of alternate reality. The idea that there, that you know, the Heisenberg principle and, and pseudo randomness, and the idea that human attention might change reality, whatever. And so there might be, and there have been some recent movies done with, you know, the idea that a decision creates a branch, and that branch, you know, in this branch, I'm in poverty, and that branch i'm in the one percent but one of the things that occurred to me is that the idea of visiting there was the idea that you might that if this was a simulation simulation and i believe it was elon musk who was quoted saying you know we're, we may not be living in base reality and he was having an argument with his brother and if this is not base reality, then it may be interchangeable for other realities. And the there one of the arguments of these physicists was saying, okay, if what if there are really brilliant entities in the future who are capable of creating this as kind of a very complicated video game? What if some of them are here? And they're like tourists. Okay. And I thought, you know. If you were in the if you were in the future, and whether things had gone well or bad, and you were a student of history, wouldn't you want to be around during the invention of the computer, and the cell phone, and the internet, and the threat of human extinction? You know, spoiler alert: Do the humans survive? I mean, the, you would get to witness it. You would get to witness it firsthand. And you know, and then I was thinking about you know. Because you know, I've also done this mystery series about the preacher Evan Wycliffe mysteries, and he's kind of an agnostic minister, which you know, oxymoron, <laughs> I guess. A fair amount of criticism, perhaps, because it's not Christian literature, because it's not, you know, it's not preaching. But one of the things that occurred to me is that if you want a notion of heaven if you find it difficult to believe in an afterlife the idea of stepping from one alternate reality into another is not far-fetched <laughs> i mean i've i've attended some lectures by spiritualists who say oh yes my husband passed away he just simply stepped out of the movie he's with me every day and it's like it sounded like raving at the time 
But I mean, the more we get into the VR and the AI, the more I think, you know something? <laughs> I'm not really I'm not ready to tell anybody they're wrong. I'm just not. That's an interesting point. Um, whatever the future holds for us, I think the most important thing is to keep this authenticity at the core of our soul, of our mind. Usually I end the conversation with the question of what it means to be being modern and being human, but we talked about that last time. And this time I would like to ask you, what does authenticity mean and how to find it within yourself, despite all these masks we have to wear or we wear unwittingly? I can answer that most easily as an author of fiction. And that is that back when I wrote business and technical books, you know, nonfiction, those were primarily assignments from publishers. And I had an editor and an in-house editor, and I had to submit an outline in advance, you know, for each chapter and the sub the, the subheadings for each chapter. And if I departed from that outline, I had to justify it. And, you know, I had chapter a week, whatever. They guided the writing. And some of my early novels, including My Inflatable Friend, which actually had been a screenplay, a, a successful screenplay, that gave me an outline to write to. Okay. And I quickly realized how much more is in a novel than is in a screenplay, which is only a blueprint. But as I got into writing more novels, and now what, I've done 13 of them, something like that. Now that I have, I've begun to realize that the, that marvelous things can happen when you don't know where you're going. When I trust my subconscious to lead me, and, and I often use the analogy of putting characters on stage like actors, and then you know, the, then once they they're endowed with their, once they're cloaked with their appearance, their personalities, their motivations, whatever, they're going to tell me what they want to do. And that often happens. And I will say that in terms of an author exploring the deeper recesses of your soul, and I think you and I talked last time about Joaquin Phoenix in The Joker, okay, having to go deep within himself to find, you might not believe you're a bad person, but if you're going to play a criminal, a serial killer, whatever it is, you're going to have to find that part of yourself that might be capable, you know? You're going to have, and that's painful. I mean, that is really difficult. And so, but that's authenticity of understanding. Let's say, for example, I mean, we were talking again about masks. Be, be on be aware of the fact that when you are the boss giving direction, you may be wearing the mask of the mean person you think that your boss expects you to be. And I did know some women executives who basically were deliberately nasty because they felt that made them appear just as tough as a man. The problem was they didn't get promoted because they weren't thought to be quote unquote nice people. <laughs> And, you know, so they, in, in a way, you could say they'd created their own glass ceiling. So, I mean, you know, no, they should, they, they didn't need to be all sweetness, 
but again, they had they should have recognized, or they it might have been better for their career to recognize that was just a that that being tough or that maybe appearing mean is a tactic but not a strategy. You know, it gets the project done or it gets this person perhaps to follow the rules. But when it comes right down to it, when you get that employee into their job evaluation, coming across as caring about their future, what it is it, what is it that you'd like to do? You know, I mean, the mean boss isn't going to ask that question. <laughs> so I'd say, yes, that I would say authenticity has to do with the ability of, of kind of talking to your subconscious. You know, maybe it's a matter of meditation or in my case, it's a self-expression and, you know, my, it, it could be simply, it could be simply getting your hands into the pottery. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's amazing. I mean, sometimes I play solitaire to keep my mind active. And it's amazing to me, I'll get flashes of memories I can't, I didn't even know that I had when I'm involved in that. It's because I'm in, I'm engaging a part of my brain where, and the same is true, I don't know if you've noticed, when you're washing your hands, running water is white noise. And white noise stimulates parts of your brain at random. And you will actually remember things. This is why people can come up with stuff in the shower. It's not a, it's not a, a fan. It's not a fantasy, not a coincidence that that they say that they come up with ideas in the shower because white noise is causing your brain to go someplace where it doesn't usually. It's is creating other connections and you know the, the people who you know they fall asleep to white noise and okay well, whatever. But you know so we've made our point. But I do think that listening to yourself and this fellow the psychiatrist who talked about masks he said one of the most intriguing masks is what i would call the sage self and this is part of your personality that lives 10 years in the future and that is a pro projection of where your super ego wants you to go or the person that you wish to become and so some people would say, okay, well, this is my spirit guide. This is God talking to me. This is my, this is the ghost of my mother. Okay, we've got all kinds of explanation for where this wisdom might flow from. But indeed, this is the truly authentic self. And if we have this philosophy that we believe or we hold the hope that humans are essentially good which is kind of hard to do from one day to the next but if we hold to that aspiration even if it might seem fruitless that's where it would come from that's what we're that's what we're endowed with you know we're given these brains that you know the scientists tell we're given a brain much larger than we needed to survive well what for <laughs> What for? Well, you know, get quiet and listen. <laughs> Maybe you'll tell yourself why. Absolutely. I agree about people being essentially good. And I want to believe that. As you mentioned, people being nasty, it's more about social conventions and societal norms and circumstances. Wherein I think we all 
want to think of ourselves as good people. No one wants to be nasty, mean, or seen by other people as a bad person. I think that's what will help us in the future. And that's what will save us if we need uh, to be saved <laughs> at some point. Well, you know, people being good doesn't usually make headlines. And so, you know, the, we're right back to social media. And, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, the usual saying of a television journalist is, you know, we want to see, you know, and, and you can scroll through, I mean, Look at what Instagram has become with all these videos. It's like, okay, people fascinated watching plane crashes or pl almost plane crashes or vehicles turning over or things that look like magic tricks, you know, and so just keep scrolling and scrolling. The idea is just to simply keep your attention. And, you know, a, a small dose of that could be amusing, but I mean, you certainly don't want to spend hours doing that because it's feeding a kind of morbid curiosity that really doesn't, you're not engaging that part of yourself that's going to write poetry. I, I don't know, maybe you are. I mean, you know, maybe it would come out as Edgar Allan Poe and they would think you're brilliant. Right. So let's stay connected to ourselves, to our loved ones. And let's hope that technology will help us be our authentic selves. Um, Thank you for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your thoughts. I hope to see you another time. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to remember to say thank you the next time she folds the clothes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening. If you enjoy being modern, being human, I'd love it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback is so valuable to me and helps you make the show better. And if you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.